Now, would you turn with me, please, to that second portion of God's Word that we read? We will be referring to Acts chapter 6, but we'll read some verses on from verse 8 of 1 Timothy chapter 3. Likewise, must the deacons be grave, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy of filthy lucre, holding the mystery of the faith in a pure conscience. And let these also first be proved, then let them use the office of a deacon, being found blameless, and so on. Now, friends, as you have had intimated in the past, and you will have another intimation today, uh, the congregation here are going to proceed to the election of deacons. And this election of deacons, it is an important election. You will have, in the will of the Lord, another election on Thursday evening. The election, we pray, of a pastor of this congregation. But as we will see, all of these offices go hand in hand because they have been instituted of the Lord himself for the well-being and the good order of the church. And so, as you approach Thursday evening, but equally as you approach the election of deacons, I would impress upon you to pray and be much in prayer that the Lord would lead you to so make a good election. So that needs much prayer. It needs much thought, as we shall see here, as these characteristics, these qualifications are laid out in Scripture to us. But it will also, and this will be part of your prayer, that those that are elected, that they will receive that grace to lead them and to direct them in the calling that the Lord has called them to. Because it is an election, yes, but it is a calling as well. It is the Lord himself that ultimately will make that calling unto them. And they will have that willingness, I'm sure, to serve the Lord Jesus Christ in this sphere of work. Now, I know whoever that lot will fall upon, they will surely ask the question, oh, someone else can do it, can't they? They will say, I'm not sufficient for these things, as the apostle himself would say, who is sufficient unto these things? Nevertheless, they will come, I have no doubt, and depend upon the grace of the Lord to give them the leading in the days that lie ahead, as he has given them much, 
so they return unto him a little, we pray. So the deacon, it is an office, and it is an office of Christ. When we come here to 1 Timothy chapter 3, we notice here that in 1 Timothy chapter 3, and this is why I read all of the chapter, the first part of the chapter has to do uh, with, with elders and the calling of, of elders and the qualifications of, uh, of an elder. But you'll notice here that in verse 8, when it comes to that specific office of a deacon, it says, likewise must the deacons have a good report. So in other words, the qualifications of an elder and the moral qualifications, likewise, the deacon is also to have that qualification. Now, it's interesting that when you come here to 1 Timothy chapter 3 and, and verse 8, there is this assumption that, that the deacons have already been in place and have already been in office. And of course, in a sense, that is true. You go back to Acts chapter 6, and there you will see that work that they had been set uh, aside to. And this is where we think now for a moment of the church uh, of Christ. What are we today? What is the, the broader church today? How is it described in Scripture? It is described in Scripture as a body. And that body works in each of its parts, just as our body works. That is why we're given the illustration. The hands work in relation to the signal that is sent to them. Uh, the, the feet and the legs work, the limbs work. And this comes from the one who is the head himself. It is for the good governance and the good order of the kingdom here below that Christ directs unto the church that there shall be offices. There is the office of the, the preaching elder. Not all men are called to that office. There is the office of the ruling elder. Not all are set aside to that office. And there is the office of a deacon. And so it is that the Lord himself, in that wise counsel of his, has so ordained that these offices are established. But friends, this morning, and this has always been the teaching uh, of the Reformed churches, this morning we are to see that those offices derive as a picture of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ himself. He is the one who has, he has all of those divine offices, prophet, priest, and king. But in his exercise of those offices, in his ministry here below, he exercises those three offices that we are speaking of this morning. He exercises the office of a preaching elder. That's where the preaching elder assumes that office from. That's where he is, sets his, 
his sight upon. There is the one who is his example. Christ is the one who is the preacher. He is the word preached itself. Christ is the one who, who rules. He's the one who is the head of this church. He rules. The elders who rule in his place, they derive their authority from him, and they must mirror his rulership. But when you think of the examples of our Redeemer, he is the one who, who cares for the poor. He is the one who gives the, the food to those that are hungry. He's the one who exercises that temporal care. And so as we come to consider the, the office of a deacon this morning, we are to see it in that light, that it is a mirror of that part of the office that Christ himself and the example that Christ himself saith forth. This is the pattern of the Redeemer's ministry. Now, when we read in Acts chapter 6, we read of a certain situation that had arisen in the church. And that situation that had arisen in the church was you had those who were of the dispersions. We're told they were the Grecians, the Greek-speaking Jews. And these Greek-speaking Jews had, had, had come uh, in, into the church, and, and it was obvious. For whatever reason, it was obvious that their widows, their vulnerable, those that needed care most, were not receiving it from the, the, the Jewish-speaking Christians, if you like. And there was trouble. And so they come to ask this question, how do we sort out this? And you will remember that it was said that it is not good for those who have been set aside to the spiritual office. It is not good for them to be concerned wholly with the practical temporal things that needed those practical temporal attention. Why was it not good for them to serve tables? Was it because they didn't care? No, it wasn't because they didn't care. But the Lord had called them to another duty. And that other duty was going to be a, a difficult duty. It was going to be a duty that they were going to be exercised in, in prayer and the preaching of the word. And so the diaconate was an office that was set up. Choose out seven men. And these seven men had to be of good report. They had to have almost all of the qualifications that the elders had. Well, they were going to have this specific care. And they were going to care for the widows. And they were going to care for the vulnerable. And they were going to care for those who are going through trials and difficulties, perhaps financial, perhaps temporal, whatever it might be. 
And in other words, this was a, a, a new office that was being set up. And yet in many ways it wasn't. It's interesting, you go back into the, the Old Testament. I, I don't have time to do this this morning, but you go back into the Old Testament and you will see that there were, there were those in the Old Testament and the, they had that, that special duty of, of, of serving the priests. They, they would care for the, uh, the, the implements and they would, they would care for the utensils. And that was, that was a, a, a temporal work. And yet it had the spiritual significance. And that is why we, we read from at the very beginning of chapter 3 of 1 Timothy. You see, there are those and they say, well, the, the diaconate, it's, it, it's not a spiritual office. Well, well, friends, if you read 1 Timothy chapter 3, it most definitely is. Because it has spiritual requirements that are there. Uh, it's speaking about a man standing. It's speaking about his his foundation in Jesus Christ. So it most uh, assuredly is uh, a spiritual office. So there is where we get the origin. It is so that the elders, so that the minister would be given over to the word and to prayer itself. My friends, I, uh, I'm going to digress slightly, and I say this in relation to next week. In the will of the Lord, you hope to call a pastor of this congregation. And one of the things that you will want to do as you, you prepare for that, one of the things you will want to do is that when that man comes, that he will be a man that is given over to the Word, to the preaching of the Word, to visitation, to prayer itself, to the spiritual things. Well, in order for him to be given over to that, in order for your elders to be given over to that, they must not be encumbered with all of the things that are the temporal, needy things of the kingdom. In other words, what we are seeing here is a division of the labors. A man cannot do everything. A body of men cannot do everything. That is why there needs to be a setting apart. And that is where the origin of the diaconate begins, with this very temporal question about the serving of those who are in need. But you'll notice, secondly, with me here, uh, that you have the spiritual qualifications, and we have touched on those, and they are from verse 8 on. You see, those spiritual uh, uh, um, qualifications, they prove, as we said, that this is a spiritual office. Now, I want us to notice, first of all, that there are some negatives. In other words, we might say disqualifications from the diaconate. Disqualifications from the diaconate. And the first one we notice is this, 
that a deacon must not be one who is double-tongued. Now, you'll notice that in verse 8. Likewise, must the deacons be grave, not double-tongued. Not double-tongued. This, this reference to double-tongued, it, it, it has a, a number of, of meanings to it and shades of meanings. First of all, a, a deacon must be somebody who is not misleading. Now, this applies to his, his word, and it applies to his actions. He must be somebody who is not untruthful. You remember in 2 Kings chapter 5, you have somebody there who would not be appropriate as a deacon, Gehazi. Gehazi, we would say, was, was somebody who was double-tongued. He was, he, he was slippery. What you saw was not what you got. Well, we are told here that a deacon is not to be double-tongued. He's not to be somebody who, who procrastinates, puts off. And this is why it is peculiar here uh, with such emphasis to the diaconate. John Calvin, in his uh, sermons, uh, and it's his sermons on First uh, Timothy, uh, he, he speaks about this, and he says, if the poor come, and they're seeking help, and they are promised it, and it does not take place, he said, all that happens is a mere show is made before them. And if there be not but dissembling in all his words, and he sprinkleth with holy water in making fair promises and performing nothing, we know that there is nothing more contrary to the nature and office of a deacon. Now, what I have said about the deacon is also true of the other office, but here it is vitally important that if somebody comes, somebody has a care, the deacon must be someone that you can depend upon. His yea must be yea, and his nay, nay. You know, when it comes to the, the, the work in the house of God, if the deacon says, well, I'm going to do that, I volunteer, and he doesn't do it. There's something here that's undermining that office. Now, there might be circumstances, there might be providences that comes in that that uh, totally uh, cancels out his, his good intention. But if it's something that is consistent, you know, what the apostle is coming here is he's, he's coming to the very core of integrity and, and, and honesty. And so he's not to be double-minded. That's a disqualification. We're told in the second place he's, he's not to be given to much wine. In other words, he, he's to be moderate. The sense here is, it, it's, it's not speaking here about a, a, a total abstinence from, from, from alcohol, but we must remember that, that the Jews always diluted their wine, lest their, their mind would not be sharp. 
Well, here is, is, is someone, he, he's to have a sharp mind, he's, he's to be alert for the things of the Lord and for uh, the care of the Lord's people. He's not to be, for instance, like Lot, even though he was righteous Lot. Lot's actions, if they continued in his drunkenness, he would not be a fit person to be a deacon. Now, he, he might have had a once-off, that might be so. But if it was something that was endemic to him, he's not to be given too much wine. That speaks about something that is continuous. And then something that is important for the office of a deacon, he's not to be given to filthy lucre. In that, in, in that sense, it is uh, a love of worldly things, uh, a, love of, a love of money itself. Now, there might, be, there might be a suggestion here about a, a, a temptation, lest he, he, he'd be something like Judas Iscariot and be taken from the bag of money. But I, I think it's, it's, it's teaching a point more than that. It's, he's, he's not to have a mercenary spirit. Remember, Judas Iscariot had the problem with the breaking of the alabaster box because of the cost. Well, if you have if you have a, a deacon and he's always concerned with the with the cost, he's going to be less likely to to be beneficial to to the poor who who are in need and who have dire needs. In other words, he's not to be a worldly man. Now, those are some of the disqualifications. But you know, I I, I come to this point, friends. Would those not be some of the disqualifications? for membership itself, sitting at the Lord's table. Well, what are the qualifications? Well, we read in, in verse 9 that he is to be one who is holding the mystery of the faith in a pure conscience. He's to hold the mystery of the faith. What is the mystery of the faith? Well, the faith itself is a mystery, except the Lord would reveal it. So when he holds the mystery of this faith, he holds faith itself. He holds the great truths of the faith. That's what we speak about faith in an objective sense, the, the great doctrines of Scripture. He's not to be somebody who, who denies the fundamentals. Of course not. He is to be one who has to have this faith. And when he would come to, to take office, he has to answer certain questions. He has to sign the formula. He has to believe in certain things. And I think that is the meaning that we have there when we come to verse 16. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. These are speaking about the great truths of the faith. So he's to hold the mystery of the faith. And he's to have a desire to be obedient unto these things. But he's also to be 
an exercised Christian. An exercised Christian. He he's to be one who, when when the trials of life come, he he's to see the hand of the Lord in these things. But when the trials of life comes again, he's able to to see and to lay hold upon what he has believed in the past and learn from. And he's to see that the Lord himself is the one who directs these things. In other words, he is to be one who has that union with the Son, but also that communion with the Son that so gives him that joy in the Lord. And he will have it also with the saints. Holding the mystery of the faith. But then you notice in the second place, and, and, and closely tied to this, is he is to have a pure conscience. This is to be somebody, of course, who is right with the Lord. But in that pure conscience, he's to have the, the conscience itself sprinkled with the blood of Christ. Now, what do I mean by the conscience sprinkled with the blood of Christ? I mean this. He's to be one that holds firmly and tightly that the promises of God to his people are ones that he holds to. That when the trials of faith comes, he's able to go to scriptures like, uh, him that cometh unto me, I will in no wise cast out. And that will aid his assurance. He's to take those promises of the word and he's to apply them to the conscience. In other words, that as the blood of Christ is applied, it is applied to the conscience as well as to the soul. I say this carefully. He's to be the one that has an assurance of faith. I'm not saying that he is to be one that has to have a perfect assurance of faith. I'm not saying that. But this deacon is not to go uh, to to those who are perhaps cast down. Maybe they are the maybe they are the widows. They are they are on uh, the, the the poverty line, and he's to to bring them the pressing news about the Lord or the pressing news about His faith. No, he is to have the sprinkling of the blood of Christ upon his conscience. He is to be void of offense towards God and to man. In other words, if he's, if he's somebody who is fractious, cantankerous, then friends, there's going to be a problem with that man's purity of conscience. How will he deal? not only towards God, but even at a more base level towards man. 
He's to have this suitable walk before the Lord. Yes, he, he, it will be, as, as Calvin says, with all of us in the Christian life, uh, we, we are on an incline. It, it's a difficult path. Sometimes it's two steps forward and one back, but there is, there is progress. Outwardly, that Christian walk is to be one that is circumspect. He's to have that pure conscience. That is someone that you're looking for to be a deacon. And you see, part of their, their whole being is to be honed in this regard. Then you'll notice he's somebody that is to be proved. Somebody that is tested. Not that you, you run a test on him as regards an examination, but in other words, he's someone that you, you have observed over a period of time, and you have found these characteristics, these qualifications that are there. We are told that this person is to be blameless. Being found blameless, verse 10. That word blameless means not to be called to account. It means somebody who is irreproachable. It doesn't mean that this man is to be sinless. There is none, of course, and you know this, that is without sin this side of eternity. But it does mean this, that this man is upright, he's trustworthy, he has a good report of those who are without. There is nothing that can be openly laid to his charge of a serious kind. Then you'll notice in verse 12, it's speaking, verse 12 is speaking about his, his own conduct at, at home. Let the deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children and their own house as well. This was at a time when uh, the apostle was writing uh, to, to Timothy and to, to the church that was growing up that there was uh, a practice of polygamy, and it was endemic, and it was accepted. It was a social norm at the time. And so the apostle says, never mind. Never mind what is accepted. Never mind what is the social norm. Never mind what politicians might say. Never mind uh, what the, the professing uh, people might say. And I don't mean professing in the narrow sense. What they might say. A deacon must be the husband of one wife. In other words, he is not to be someone who contravenes seven commandments. To be the husband of one wife. As an office bearer, he is to, to stand out. And then you'll notice in verse 12, he's, there's the reference to, to his, his, his children and their own houses well. Again, 
are these not basic requirements? So you have here the, the origins, the qualifications, but then I want us to consider uh, the work, and I am conscious that our, our time is quickly going. Consider the work. And the reference here is to, you'll notice the reference to filthy lucre. That's, that can be taken as money and finance. And of course, as we, we know today that deacons, and I'm maybe not sure does everyone know what a, what a deacon does, you will know that the the deacons are are those who who count the money. They are those who decide where where that money goes to. It goes to maybe central funds. It, it goes to the the various upkeep of, of the, the buildings. It is, in a sense, to to do with uh, buildings itself and the balancing of the books at at the end of the year. Those are uh, those are the the temporal things. We could notice that recently here in this congregation. If we had very large congregations, we probably would not have elders sitting in, in the deacon's court. They would be wholly given over to the word and to, to prayer. But I, I observed that when much of the building of the property here while the elders sought in the deacon's court, quite rightly, the deacons bore a large weight of that work. They, everybody gave advice, that is true, but they bore a large weight of that work. And it is to do with this temporal part of the kingdom itself. You'll notice from Acts chapter 6 and verse 4, something that we are told there. But we, and we have quoted it a number of times, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Why is it that the congregation needs deacons? The congregation needs deacons to deal with the temporal things of the kingdom so that the elders and your future minister does not have to deal with those things so that they will be enabled to deal with the spiritual things of prayer, of visitation, and in the will of the Lord of the preaching of the word of God. And we see here a distinction, therefore, in the roles. And let me say this, friends, because I, I do believe this needs to be said. You should not be electing a deacon, thinking that this deacon somewhere down the line will be a future elder. He might well be. But you are to elect the deacon for the purpose of that office in its entirety within itself. The diaconate should not be seen as a stepping stone to the eldership. They are two wholly different offices. 
with wholly different purposes. And that is why very often that the diaconate is seen as somehow a lesser office than the eldership. It is not a lesser office. It is a distinct office, but not lesser. You see, here the men in Acts chapter 6 had to be searched out. Now, I don't know how they were searched out. We are, we are not directly told that. But we know elsewhere that very often lots were cast. And we know even in the casting of lots that the Lord is the one who controls providence. You, you see that with, with, with Jonah. Those, those sticks were thrown, and yet the Lord had that lot to fall upon Jonah. The Lord controls in his providence. Well, how much more so will the Lord control in his providence the choosing out of these, these men in this congregation when you are praying for them, when you are looking at the characteristics, the qualifications that are necessary? How much more so of an incentive will that be upon those men to accept that office when they know that this is the leading of the Lord. Now I was going to I was going to touch on something else in um, one of the verses there in, in uh, about the about the wives. I'm not going to touch on that uh, this morning. We just don't have time. But I want you to notice the designated work, the qualifications, the origins. But here in verse 13, that there is a reward. There is a reward for those who are deacons. For they that have used the office of a deacon well, purchase to themselves a good degree and great boldness in the faith, which is in Christ Jesus. If all of the above takes place, and if all of the above is blessed, the Apostle Paul knows because of the inspiration of God, but also because of this promise to reward the deacons, that this is indeed a good office. They are rewarded for their special efforts. Now, friends, that is an encouragement to whoever will be chosen to be a deacon, that you are rewarded. Now, I know that you will not accept that office merely looking to, to have reward, but it is a reminder that the Lord is no man's debtor. He's no man's debtor. And as you will receive this reward, it's we might say it's, it's, it's a degree. That's what the word translated could be. It's a, it's a step. As you receive this reward, it is because of that great service that you do. So how can this be a lesser office? The deacons serve. The elders rule. And therefore, if they serve well, they will have a great standing. The setting forth 
of the faith in Jesus Christ will surely be that standing. Remember, James speaks about justification by works. In other words, we show that we have been justified by faith when our actions prove that that is so. Well, here is one of the ways that a deacon who is called will show that he has that cause of Christ within him. He sets forth Christ, even by his actions, even to those who are vulnerable, even to those who need that temporal care. Now, we might ask the question today, and with this we end, do we need deacons today? You consider what it, what it was there in Acts chapter 6, taking care of the widows and, and the vulnerable. Don't we have a welfare state today? Why do we need deacons? Because the Lord says we need deacons. You think of, and I, 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 do, I, will say, I will say this, there might be somebody in the congregation now or in the future, and they are going through financial difficulties because of no fault of their own. It is the task of the deacons to note that and to ensure that that person receives help and aid from the body, from the church. And as that would be graciously offered, and this is, this is the work, this is the work, the biblical work, as that would be graciously offered, it should be graciously received. And friends, in a situation like that, we would sin if we needed that help and it was offered and we refused it out of a pride. We would sin before the Lord and before our fellow men. Yes, we need the office of a deacon because the deacon should be involved in those things, but he should also take the weight of the elders and of the minister in the service of the kingdom here below. And we pray that the Lord will indeed so raise up men that as you are led to elect, they will, before the Lord, be led to serve. May the Lord bless his word. Let us pray. Our gracious and eternal Lord, we bow before thee. We thank thee that thou art the one who is indeed good unto thy kingdom, that thou hast opened up a way of order in the house of God. And we pray that as we seek to follow that way of order, that thou would direct us and guide us. And we pray that uh, thou would be the one who would receive to thyself the honor, the praise, the glory. For we ask it in Emmanuel's name and for his sake. Amen.